I've been using Hawksoft for about uh, over 10 years, and I just love this uh, management system because the company itself is very responsive. They take ideas from the agents and they put them in a queue and they will work on them. The other part is it's a great cost. It's probably the best cost out there for users and additional users that I have uh, compared to, I was on AMS years ago, and they were a fraction of the cost. So... That's obviously a big benefit, but I just love the company, their customer service. They're always responsive. You can just call them up and they're a very family oriented company. You can just kind of tell the way they operate and they're really agent oriented. That's what I really love about this company because a lot of the other ones aren't. They're so large in the corporate that they just lose that personal touch. And that has not happened with Hawksoft in over the 10 years that I've been with them. My name is John Crawley. I'm the owner of JCA Insurance Services in Anaheim Hills, California. And this is why I use Hawksoft. Hey guys, it's Bradley. I want to tell you about Ascend. Ascend is not just another premium finance company. Ascend will solve all of your agency bill problems through automation of invoicing, premium financing, carrier payables, all the way to the end of the workflow. There's a lot of hidden costs with how you're doing business today. AMSs, CRMs can spend more than half the day chasing down payments, following up on non-pays, getting signatures for financing docs. This leads to an overworked, overwhelmed, unhappy team. And guys, you want your team to be happy. Industry's hard enough as it is. We really need them to be happy. As your agency grows, this issue gets worse and worse, and we typically solve the problem with a little bit of software, but a ton of manpower still involved. With Ascend, you can use a software-first solution and just need a little bit of manpower, allowing you to grow without significant increase in overhead. Ascend automates all of these repetitive payment processes so your team can get back to helping your clients. With Ascend, we've seen non-payment cancellations in our agency go down up to 95%. Teams save more than 20 hours per month when they work with Ascend and an average of a 75% decrease in payment-related customer questions. Guys, if people aren't calling your office with questions, you have more time to sell and grow your agency. Visit useascend.com backslash insurance, guys. Guys, Ascend makes agency bill as easy as direct bill, but you keep all of the benefits of agency bill the best of both worlds. Thanks, guys. Insurance agents from around the world, welcome to the Insurance Guys podcast, powered by Hawksaw. My name is Scott Howell, your fearless host and leader, insurance agency owner and insurance evangelist for iProtect Insurance and Financial Services, based out of Huntsville, Alabama. And before we get started on today's episode, please help me welcome, he is a six foot three sophomore from Mobile, Alabama. Parade First Team All-American, Rivals, five-star recruit. He is a fantastic insurance agent and a great American. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome the incomparable Mr. Bradley Flowers. How are you, Bradley? I'm great, Scott. Um, I have a Scott Howell-esque story. Please. I love Scott Howell this stories. happened to me the other Anytime day. something happens, but it's not happening to me, yeah. which is very, very rare. I love hearing about it. Go. This happened to me the other day, and as soon as it got over with and I realized I was not going to die, mm. I said, I've got to tell Scott that story on the mm. podcast. Mm. So many of you know from last week's show uh, and from being friends with me on social media, uh, my son's nanny quit, mm. and we're in between nannies right now. So I'm having, me and my wife are having to like work half days and that sort of thing. So I had him the other day uh, in my house. 
uh, we have a, for the last few years, we have had a bit of a snake problem at our house. Mm. I don't know if you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, you need my wife down there, snake killer. Well, and I, you know, this might, I, I tend to not go controversial, but this is controversial. And I know some of y'all are going to say, oh, that's a good snake. You don't need to kill the good snake. Mm-hmm. That's the devil and the Bible says it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everyone we come across, we, you know, yeah. chop their head off. Get rid of it. So. Uh, we have a bit of, and I hate snakes. We have a bit of a snake problem. And by the way, I'm serious as cancer. My wife, yeah, I last week walked out the back sliding door and turned around to me and she goes, Hey, I'm going down to the bluff. I want to go snake hunting. Yeah. It's like the, the rattlesnake rodeo in Op, Alabama. I'm like, have fun. Yeah. I'd bring her down. I'd, just, I'd bring her down here. Let so her there's just kill a, So this is actually, there is a, there's a place, a complete tangent. There's a place called Op Alabama, no OPP, no and they have a festival. Did you know this, Rand? They have a festival called the Rattlesnake Rodeo. Mm. It's like a a carnival mm-hmm. where you can eat rattlesnake. Yep. You can uh, play with rattlesnakes. Yep. Uh, you can uh, watch them in the pen. Watch get in them there in with the all. Pen. Yeah. And then they have a hunt, I believe, where they go out and hunt rattlesnakes. And the, as far as I know, I discovered about a year ago, and I think I called you when I discovered it, the person who is in, and you think, you hear that and you think, oh my God, Matthew, right? That must be a risk management nightmare. Mm. Right? There's no way they're not insured with a captive, right? And the guy who is in charge of it is an independent insurance agency owner. Wow. Yeah. Has a policy. I don't know if he has a policy. I don't know if he insures it. But you think that's not something an insurance agent would be involved with at all. But the guy in charge of it is an insurance agent. Anyway, side note. Okay, back to my story. So I get home with Luke. I love my days with him Mm -hmm. because he's pretty chill from 8 o'clock to lunchtime. Mm -hmm. We usually strike out about 10 a.m. and I go run some errand that I really don't have to run just as an excuse to get him out of the house. We do a little car ride on the way back. He gets a little sleepy, you know. So we get back in the house. And I drop the diaper bag by the front, by the back door. And I go to change his diaper because I'm about to put him down for a nap. And I notice we're out of diapers, completely out of diapers. And I said, wait a minute, there's one in the diaper bag. Mm-hmm. So I, I leave him on the changing table, which is a risk. This is inside the house. Inside the house. Wow. I leave him on the changing table. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's big enough now. He's, he's good. He can just chill there. And I run real fast mm-hmm. to go get a diaper out of the diaper bag. Sure. And I, the diaper bag has like a front pocket that doesn't close. It's like a pocket on like a back pocket. Kind yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, like, a, like from your pants, but it's on the front and I pull the diaper bag and out from uh-uh. the, that pocket comes a head. that's about that big around and black and it's coming at me. And it was a salamander. But when I say I jumped up, and I said the F word as loud as I possibly, I've never been, yeah, damn, the damn button. I have never been more scared in my entire life. I mean, my adrenaline, and I hate snakes anyway. And I, I grabbed that bag and I opened the back door and I threw it as far as I could. Because I didn't want the salamander in my house either. Right. Sure. It was a big sal. I mean, it was probably, oh, yeah. a, you know. It looked like a snake inch, almost. It, the yeah. head of it looked like a snake. Yeah. And then yeah. I saw arms. But... When that ha- I called my wife and I was like, I just have to tell you what just happened. 
And I told her what happened. I was like, I cannot wait to tell Scott that story on the podcast. That's unbelievable. Bradley, I, I think, you know, when I was three, four years old, around Luke's age, my parents were both educators. My mom taught English and special education. My dad was assistant superintendent then at the, at the school. And they would leave me with my granddaddy Howell and my grandmother Howell. And my granddaddy Howell would come home from, he had a, he owned a body shop downtown and he'd come home about three o'clock every day. And granddaddy Howell sounds like he could catch a snake. Oh, that well, name. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, he would drink a half a fifth of wild Turkey one Oh one between the hours of about three and seven, seven thirty till he got ready to go to bed. But he'd also chain smoke, uh, of those uh camel reds with no filters it, in the house with me in there watching that old magnavox television your doctor probably uh, also smoked while that happened sure you. absolutely yeah. uh so if anybody wonders why i have lung conditions today it's probably from being left with my grandparents chain smoking in the house while i'm in there at four years old anyway bradley we have a rock star guest today, and I am so glad that you brought – I did not know until I literally sat down here this morning that he was going to be on the show today. He and I actually had a conversation about a year ago on the phone uh, related to creating captive programs, and I, I know he's probably like, well, Scott, why, did, why didn't you ever get back with me on that? Well, little does he know that all hell – has broken loose at my agency over the past couple of years and we we cannot seem to to get right with the lord and get things straightened out so i am excited to bring him on the show today and i want to give him the introduction that he has always deserved but ladies and gentlemen he is originally from atlanta georgia and he currently resides in rome georgia he is a graduate both undergrad and law degree, excuse me, undergrad from Georgia Tech, law degree from Georgia State University. He is a captive insurance owner and manager, and he is an advisor for the 831B Institute. Guys, his resume is unbelievable, all the things that he's done. And just from the time that he and I spent together on the phone, there's probably nobody that I know that understands captive insurance programs quite as well as he does. He is a member of the State uh, Bar Association of Georgia. He has his license, property and casualty broker, love that, excess and surplus lines broker, just got my surplus lines broker license and it was a absolute pain in my ass with the state of Alabama to have to deal with we'll get into that later he's just a he's a rising star in my opinion in the property and casualty world and I think he's somebody that a lot of podcast listeners need to follow and get to know on a personal level and we were talking about twitter earlier does a great job on twitter. that's how i got to know him you just stole my thunder Sorry. and does a great job on twitter as well ladies and gentlemen it is my profound honor today to introduce to you the one and only my friend mr matthew queen how are you matthew oh, i'm doing well you guys are way too kind thank you very much for that beautiful introduction 
Matthew, I, I love the fact that you're one of those guys that just wants to get on with a get on. So I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, soft soak this at all. Captive insurance owner and manager, you felt like we had an overreach by the Internal Revenue Service related to captive programs. I'm going to hand the ball off to you now and let you run with it. So the the problem that's going on in the captive insurance industry is that the IRS has never regarded it as a real thing. Right. So let's bifurcate because a lot of people, especially on this podcast, are going to think of captive and they think like captive agency. So State like form, Allstate yeah. or Nationwide or whoever sure. may only allow you to write on their uh, on their paper. And there's a lot of advantages to being a captive agent. What we're doing is something that is completely different. And it's effectively just creating an insurance company. So what you do in creating a captive insurance company, and I'm, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak past legalese and get to like the practical stuff. Like how do you create a captive insurance company? Step one is you hire an actuary. Step two is... Well, really, step zero is you have a problem. I mean, let's let's be realistic here. No business owner is going to, you know, if you're in commercial trucking, you're not going to turn around and start an insurance company for fun. So you got a problem. And one of, you know, I got a couple, couple big areas out there that are problem: uh, property insurance, uh, commercial trucking, uh, professional liability for all, for all forms of healthcare, cyber. These areas are areas where premiums are increasing without any real relation to the claims. So you have a lot of people out there with good claims history, you're getting beaten up, 50, 75% increases in their premium. And when you get into uh, organizations of a certain size, that's a material chunk of money out the door. So when your claims are bigger, I'm sorry, when your premiums are bigger than your claims and the numbers are kind of big, half a million bucks, million bucks, some of these business owners say, well, I mean, why, why, why don't I just do that myself? Why don't I just self-insure? And that's what I do for people is I help them to self-insure. Mm. So the practical thing you do is let's just take any any risk you want. Let's take uh, commercial, commercial trucking. We got uh, X number of trucks. We're going to have, uh, you know, we go out and get a quote from who, who cares, some carrier, and it's an exorbitant amount of money, 1.5 million, something like that. You bring me on board. I'm going to suck, uh, you know, at least 10% off the top. Generally speaking, uh, I can, depending on your claims history, maybe it'll, it'll even go lower than that. So you were paying one five. Now it's a million. The actuarial is going to support all that. We put together a feasibility study, uh, which is effectively an actuarial plus a business plan, plus some some degree of competency in terms of like how we're going to manage the risk. Then you submit that with an application to the Department of Insurance. Uh, There's a handful of states that are really friendly to domicile and captives. So uh, let's assume for the sake of argument, your client is in Alabama. We submit this up to my uh, uh, one of one or two states I think are good, Oklahoma and Tennessee, uh, assuming we you know pay the fees and did a good job of the actuarial, they then hand you an insurance license. So you incorporate a new company and you get an insurance license. You're getting two licenses from the state. So once you have those licenses in hand, you then go open up a bank account. That bank account is managed by a captive insurance manager. That is a fiduciary who governs your captive insurance program and basically exists as a pseudo regulator for the benefit of the insurance department. And is but that also sometimes where to... the agent fits in? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The agency oftentimes is, is a captive insurance manager. Uh, sometimes they're their own thing. Captive insurance management is actually a very heavy accounting practice. So if you got a good bookkeeper, who can produce monthly financials, you can probably do it yourselves, like you two. This isn't an example anymore. It's really, it's really not that complicated. If you if you can put together in QuickBooks something that shows your, your income, 
uh, uh, your expenses, the assets, the liabilities, and put that together on a monthly basis, you're pretty much doing capital management right there. This so would the, have been the perfect opportunity for our brand new sponsor that just turned us down Friday. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Screwed that up. Anyway, go ahead. I tried to tell So you. then what yep. you do is you take you take that, let's just say, what was that, a million bucks in premium? Okay, so we're going to pay that. Instead of doing premium financing, we'll probably do monthly payments. So we'll take one-twelfth of a million dollars, and we'll put it into our, our bank account. So typically, you pay it to the cap manager who puts it in the bank account, or you can put it in there yourself. Fundamentally, what did I just tell you? You had a problem, you priced it out with some actuaries, and then you go put all that money into a bank account. Now, this bank account's a little special because it's got an insurance license attached to it, but fundamentally, what's happening? You were paying $1.5 million in, in premium. Now you're paying a million. All right. Huge win. It's great. Okay. Now let's further assume that your, your claims are coming in. They're good. Maybe 750, 800 grand a year in claims. All that money you didn't spend. Well, that's just, that's just money. You get it. It's yours. You get to keep all that money. So this, is, this actually does kind of solve the insurance problem of what happens if I don't have claims? Do I ever get my money back? Yes, captive insurance. Whatever you don't spend in claims is yours. And the IRS dislikes about this is the notion that a middle market company can do this. In their eyes, it, 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 they, they lost this argument, but for decades, I'm talking about from 19, at least the 1970s, maybe the 60s, they were attacking captive insurance as violation of the economic family doctrine. So the idea there was, okay, smarty pants, instead of paying a million bucks to, I don't know, AIG, now you're paying yourself a million bucks. That's just, that's an accounting thing. It's total crap. There's no real insurance. You didn't shift the risk to a third party. And unfortunately for the IRS, the, the tax court uh, slapped them down pretty hard in a case called Moline, M-O-L-I-N-E. And in Moline versus the uh, insurance commissioner, it actually was not even a tax case. The the uh, the the tax court said y'all can't have it both ways. You're not allowed to tax LLCs one way, a C corporation another way, an S corporation another way, and then arbitrarily just not recognize certain corporate forms because it's inconvenient. Hey guys, it's Bradley. Look, are you tired of spending endless hours searching for potential business prospects? Look no further. With Leo, you can gain access to a whopping 40 million businesses. That's 40 million prospects in just seconds. Say goodbye to painstaking searches and hello to efficiency. You guys know I'm all about efficiency. Leo just isn't about speed, though. It's about accuracy, too. With Leo's cutting-edge tools, you can validate new producers faster than ever before. No more wasted time on unreliable data. Leo's got you covered. But that's not all. Leo empowers you to carve your own niche market using unparalleled data insights. Want to target specific dates for workers' comp? Done. Need to identify brokers or carriers to focus on? Leo has your back. And here's the icing on the cake, guys. Leo lets you search prospects based on size, revenue, dates, violations, and more. The possibilities are literally endless. Step into a world of business possibilities with Leo. Revolutionize the way you connect, target, prospect, and succeed. Don't miss out. Join the Leo community today. Go to meetleo.com, and when you go to book a demo or reach out to them, put in the how did you hear about us field that you heard about them on the Insurance Guys podcast or IGP for short. You'll get 20% off. Talk to the folks at Leo. Highly recommend them. Thanks, guys. Well, hello there. Guys, excuse me for interrupting your regularly scheduled podcast, but I'm here today to get you out of aggregator 
and cluster jail. This may be the most important message I've ever delivered on the Insurance Guys podcast. Guys, are you a member of a cluster or an aggregator? Does your contract have exit fees, termination payments, buyback provisions? It's time to get your freedom back and do what we did here at iProtect Insurance. Join the AC, the future of aggregators in our industry. Best decision we've ever made, guys. Best decision we've ever made. No entry fees, small $200 a month membership fee, over 50 plus carriers for direct appointments. And by the way, new ones coming on board each and every month. You keep 100% of your commissions, profit sharing every year. Guys, we have made in the last two years, each year, our agency has made over $100,000 in profit sharing. Here's the best part, guys. And this is the part I'm the most passionate about. No termination or exit fees. You give the AC 60 days notice and you're free. You go get direct appointments wherever you want. There's no buyback provisions, no exit clauses. Guys, if you're a member of another aggregator and you have termination fees, buyback provisions, exit clauses, every single policy you write, you're digging that hole just a little bit deeper. And one day you're not going to be able to get out of it. It's going to be too much. You're going to be taking out a second mortgage on your home to try to get out of a cluster group. Unbelievable. Guys, go to AC Free. Dot org. That's acfree.org and register. Find out why over 650 agencies and $3 billion in premium have chosen the AC. And guys, here's the best part. But wait, there's more. Mention the Insurance Guys podcast when you talk to these guys and you get six months. That's six months of no membership fee just by mentioning the Insurance Guys podcast. Go today, www.acfree.org, and let me help you get your freedom back. Have a great day. Can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. And I, I don't mean to interrupt the story, but I just wanted to know, you, you mentioned earlier, you said whatever you don't spend in claims – you know, you get some portion of that back in terms of, I guess, profit or, or, you know, return on your investment. If I was the, the owner or the manager of a captive right now, and I go to file my taxes for, for this year, how, how would they tax that today uh, relative to the money that, you know, was, was left over after claims? How does that get taxed? That's a real good question. That's actually where we're driving here. So the let's say let's assume we have a, a million bucks in premium okay. and ignore tail on the policy. Just say you paid all your claims in the first year. Make it real simple. And let's assume we had 800 grand in claims. So we have two hundred thousand dollars left over. That would be underwriting profit. And then that would be considered income to the captive insurance company. So that captive, remember, the corporate form, you got client A, they make captive X. Captive X now posted $200,000 of profit. But wait, the Congress of 1916, I want to say, passed a section of the code, which has moved around. It's now in under Section 831. 
that says that a insurance company, not a captive, just any insurance company, property, casualty, life, health, whatever, if you write less than 2.2 million in gross written premium adjusted for inflation, it's like 2.65 million, then you don't have to declare income tax on your underwriting profits. Mm. So if you have a captive that spent 800 grand in claims and you have 200 grand left over, that's income tax free at the corporate level. Hmm. Now, obviously, you'd have to pay income tax on your personal 1040 if you do just dividend it back to yourself. But for conceivably speaking, if you don't dividend that money back up to you, it could just sit in your captive. It can become surplus off of which we can write new business or we could buy real estate. We could buy Bitcoin. You could you could fly to Vegas. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's your money. It's the company's money. And the board of directors can then allocate it however they see fit. That enormous sucking sound you heard is the taxable income for middle market companies when they use captives correctly. So if your gross written premium will cost a couple lines of businesses, 2.65 or lower, and you put that into a captive and you control your claims, then any money left over creates this huge economic effect. So on the front end, just like normal, you're getting a business deduction for all your insurance premiums. So last year I had you know $100 million of, of gross revenue I paid 2.65 million for a whole bunch of insurance. Okay, so you get a deduction right off the bat. Then any money you did not spend in claims is untaxable. So you get that deduction on the front end and then on the back end, if you didn't pay it out in claims, it's never gonna be taxed. And the IRS hates that. They just, they, they, they find that to be abusive. Unfortunately for the IRS, Congress passed this law back in, in again, it was in the 19 teens, 1916, 1917, who cares? And then recodified it many, many, many times. Uh, most recently in 1983, uh, update to the tax code, it was moved to Section 831B. And it's not like this is like a mystery to Congress. They've explicitly talked about this on many occasions because it's there for good reason. So while you may be hearing that sucking sound of tax just, just going out the back door, what's really occurring is you're stopping the excessive regulation of a small insurance carrier. Because remember, insurance is not a free business. You have to have money to make money. So what happens if you start an insurance company on day one? It may have a claim. So you have to start with a minimum statutory capital. So in other words, an insurance carrier needs to accumulate capital and pay claims. But if it's also paying taxes on its income at the same time, now you've got a real problem where you have premiums coming in, but you got taxes going out the door and claim, claims going out the door. In other words, one in and two out. And that created a, a cascading series of insolvencies for uh, small insurance companies like farm mutuals and basically any startup. So Congress determined that it's good to have competition in the marketplace. It's good that middle market people can, can get into the game of risk financing. And we're going to create a tax exemption for small insurance carriers. The IRS is not actively going after the small mutuals and the small the small county insurance companies they're going after the captives because they they just hate the concept that you can pay income tax to your, your i'm sorry you can pay premiums to your own insurance company and then ultimately not have to pay income tax if things go well for you so what they did fairly recently like in april of this year was they said okay any uh, captive insurance company that has a loss ratio of less than 65% or combined ratio of greater of, of less than 98% is now going to be considered a tax shelter. So it's called a listed transaction. It's a big red stop sign. And I found that to be reprehensible. 
the reason I find it to be so reprehensible is because the IRS is now saying that anybody who's taking advantage of this congressional inducement is effectively breaking the law. You are now trying to just create a tax shelter. So think about this at its most academic. Like, who the hell is the IRS to say who can and cannot get into the captive insurance game? And let's remember for a moment that this is not like a small area. So have you heard of the Allstate Insurance Company? A couple times. Yep. Yeah, it was actually a captive to the Sears and Roebuck company. So captive insurance has a well-worn history. And there's, there's a handful of other examples of these legitimate players in the commercial game that were created for the benefit of the parent. So for whatever reason, business owner wanted to get into the game of insurance and was successful. And now there's some, some programs out there, some MGAs, and of course, Allstate, all of which got their start captive to a larger entity. And the IRS has effectively said, yeah, that's fine if you want to do that, but not if you're in the middle market, not if you're small. The only per- the only people they're really cool with is like the Fortune 500 or 1000 companies. Which is about doing right. That. Yeah, it's it's almost like the you're too big to fail now kind of thing. But I had two questions for you. Question number one, you talked about your example earlier, one million in, let's say, we'll call them premiums, 800 in claims, 200,000 in untaxable profit or income but if if bradley and i do that with you okay we create this captive and this example you know is exactly what happens and so there's two hundred thousand dollars sitting there if he and i decide that we're going to take a distribution on that we do get taxed on that right 100 percent. once that money hits you like you're it's not like you're washing money or something if you if you're going to take the money out at some point, you are going to be taxed. Yeah, that point seems to be lost on the IRS. They <laughs> they view it as effectively as an escape around the corporate double income tax. So there is a phenomenon where income is taxed multiple times with C corporations. So if Amazon or Google makes one dollar, it's it like it pays corporate income tax on that income, and then when it's distributed via dividend or otherwise to whoever with via salary or to shareholders, you then pay income tax again. I'm not going to talk about the propriety of of that mechanic. That's that's a whole public policy decision in and of itself. But suffice it to say that the IRS loves that because the IRS is charged with one thing and one thing only. It's to go collect revenue for the government. So when they look at captives, their concern is that this is all just a bunch of phony baloney insurancees designed to create tax shelters. So, Unfortunately, there was a bad actor in uh, the early teens of 2000s. So, a, I mean, it's it's called the Avrahami case. A woman named Celia Clark was an attorney up in New York. She did create some very uh, sloppy captive insurance companies that were, I, I mean, I'll, I'll use examples here. This didn't, this isn't literally what she did, but it was as if she was like insuring a laptop for a million dollars. The idea there being to manufacture insurance premiums for completely fake risks that never paid claims. And as a consequence, that sucking sound you hear is a tax shelter. And I have no problem with prosecuting that, that that she she actually uh, was not doing real insurance. But the nuance is that when they found her guilty of running a tax shelter in 2017, they went back and then assessed a bunch of penalties against her from 2008 to 2017, asking for about $7 million in, in various fines and penalties. What the IRS won't tell you is that at every point along the way, she was 100% obeying the law. 
She set up the captives exactly the way the IRS said. She followed all the case law. And then once the IRS won their case in 2017, they had then inflicted that holding back across time and then started holding her accountable for running a tax shelter for all those years, in spite of the fact that she had multiple uh, private letter rulings from the IRS blessing her transactions, a handful of other uh, letters from the IRS suggesting that she was not committing fraud or a tax shelter. And this is a quiet story in my industry of the IRS just absolutely raking someone over, over the coals. I mean, she's wealthy by our standards, but still, when you get it, when you get a bill for seven million dollars, maybe eleven, I forget off the top of my head, that'll knock you down almost no matter how wealthy you are. And this is th- this is persecution. And I I hate that you know, I'm sitting here waving a red flag for you know the insurance industry. It's not like we have the best reputation. But it's also a, a heat-seeking missile for middle market people who are trying to get into the game of risk financing. I, I deeply, deeply dis- dislike this regulatory regime where you can effectively pay your way in so long as you're in a club. Either you're in a club because you're super rich, or you're super well-connected. But the IRS has been winning a series of, of lawsuits against smaller captives and leveraged that hubris to to create this listed transaction holding. And where I, I think this goes even further in, into the land of unconstitutionality is that the, the business of insurance is state law. So a lot of people forget that the McCarran-Ferguson Act was, was passed in the final stretch of World War II. Congress delegated the business of insurance to the states. So generally speaking, if there's a conflict between state and federal law, federal law wins, except with the business of insurance. So if the Department of Insurance says that in uh, the great state of Alabama, we're gonna require an AM best rating for all of our workers' comp carriers, um, that's the end of the discussion. I don't really care what the federal government says. And there's any number of other ways that these states govern the business of insurance. And that is one of the rare things Congress really got right. So I oppose, like philosophically, uh, monopolies, oligopolies, and the accumulation of wealth and power in the hands of a few. And one of the things that McCarran-Ferguson did unintentionally is that it precluded monopolization of the insurance markets. And I can prove it. Okay, so who's the number one homeowner's uh, insurance company by volume? Last time I checked, a couple of years ago, it was Allstate with about 15% of the market. And it would it really strains the, the, the concept of an oligopoly or a monopoly to say that 15% of the market constitutes a monopoly. And this is true through every line of insurance, whether it be personal auto, commercial auto, DNO, cyber, nobody won the game of insurance. Now compare and contrast with banking. I mean, you got like a couple too big to fail banks and then a whole bunch that I would honestly not put your, your money in. That is a fundamentally flawed market because the federal government did not do, cannot do a good job of governing banking. Insurance is governed on a state-by-state basis. So in, in particular, the most important thing the insurance regulators look for are the minimum solvency standards for each insurance company. And then they enforce insurance fraud, generally perpetuated by uh, ne'er-do-well MGAs and agents. Those two authorities held by the state's departments of insurance have created a pretty vibrant market where people like yourselves can get into the game without a lot of capital. The only other area I can think of where it's so easy to get into the game is being a lawyer. So you pass the bar exam, you can open up a law firm with basically no money down. Insurance agencies are similar. And that to me is is a highly entrepreneurial, very healthy aspect of our economy 
that was created by the McCarran-Ferguson Act. McCarran-Ferguson is in violation because the the listed transaction, the the the, the accusation of being tax sheltered, is is hinging upon captive insurance company paying a certain amount of money in claims. So the way they the way they framed it was they said, we're going to consider you a tax shelter unless your cap is paying out at a minimum a 65% loss ratio. And what they're saying is they're like, if you make too much money, we're going to call you a tax shelter. Now, here's the problem. Imagine for the sake of argument, you're a, an owner of a whole bunch of skilled nursing facilities, tough area to insure, and you create a captive. It's right in 2.6 million in gross and premium. And hand in hand with that, use that captive to purchase some awesome risk management software. Should you be punished for a 20 or 30% ultimate loss ratio? And then what's worse about that is the IRS gives you an out. They're like, well, you know, if you don't want to be considered a tax shelter, why don't you all just pass some, pass some dividends, just throw some money out the door. By the way, dividends are taxable. So you can fabricate a 65% loss ratio. So if you add $100 of premium, you paid out 30 in claims, just pay out a $35 dividend and we'll give you a pass. But that's a problem. Number one, the tail on claims can be multiple years, which is complicated. Number two, that's not insurance in the commonly accepted sense. So like the IRS has this case where they say, in order to qualify as insurance, we need to see four things. An insurable interest, risk shifting, risk distribution, and you must conduct your company like an insurance company. So don't do anything too crazy and, and the IRS thinks you're okay. But to start paying out dividends, requires you to move the state regulator because they have to assess if you have enough solvency after the payment of the dividend. And to do this without any regard to the IBNR, the ultimate loss ratio, what's going on with your claims is unorthodox. And then you would will be opening yourself up to prosecution with the IRS because you're not operating insurance in the commonly accepted sense, thereby creating this paradox where if you don't have 65% loss ratio, the IRS is going to manufacture a reason to prosecute you. This is not just. I mean, earlier, I mean, you were talking about who's a good American. This is the definition of un-American. So, Matthew, question real fast. I got, I got a couple of them here. Question number one. The cases that have recently, in recent history, that you just talked about earlier, uh, that, that have kind of been won by the IRS, so now the things that you just talked about have made these captives basically in their eyes, a tax shelter or uh, has that kind of turned the captive program stuff that you're doing? Has that lessened the amount of companies and people that want to get into this now? Because they're what like, impact well, has it yeah, had? yeah, yeah. Like, like, are they like, well, hell, I don't, I don't want. I don't want to get into it with the IRS for like, six like years. The lady did that you mentioned and do everything by the law, even though you know she's yeah. stretching the envelope a little bit, sure, but sure. but was doing it and then ends up owing eleven million dollars. Right back is is like your business. Is your business model been greatly affected by this because of of what's been going on recently with these different cases? Me, no. The industry, yes, hundred percent. Right. So. The problem that I've got with this is that the IRS has been skeptical of the concept of captive insurance since inception. So they're, they won a couple of cases against Celia Clark and a few others. And the cynicism I decline to, to adopt is that, oh, well, the IRS is just going to hit these 831B captives, the small captives, and then we'll be fine. No, 
instead of coming top down saying captive insurance isn't a thing, now they're going bottom up saying, well, we're just going to hit some smaller captives. Because if we're being honest here, they just don't have the budget. The, the IRS can litigate for 10 years, and that's 100 grand a year minimum to a defense attorney. So this area requires specialists, four or 500 bucks an hour. Yeah, you just get litigated out of existence. And they're accumulating a series of wins. They got four so far that prompted them to try to effectively uh, legislate captives out of existence, or at least 831B captives. And they're going to take that win, and they're going to move on to smaller captives in the middle market that are writing 510 million and so on and so forth, and, and try to accumulate enough data to be able to put the kibosh on the whole industry. I cannot express to you how frustrating it is to deal with to deal with a prosecutor that has determined that your insurance company is de facto fake. It's it's as it's as breathtaking as you you find your daughter with a boy in the room. The next morning you want to talk about it. And she says the boy wasn't even there. Like you can't even get off the starting ground in terms the of just IRS talking is about gaslighting captive insurance companies. So, so hey, Matthew, Matthew, question: Can we have secret time for just a moment? Just amongst, for, amongst friends here. Need a Scott's trust tree button. Are these bigger insurance carriers behind this? In other words, behind the scenes, are they hiring lobbyists? Are, are, are behind the scenes of behind the scenes, because we know. Right. I mean, you know what kind of power they have. Are they the ones? And maybe you don't even know this. Maybe maybe a Matthew Queen doesn't even know what's being said to somebody in Washington that they're like, hey, you need to y'all need to put the squelch on this because it's, yeah, cost, exactly it's costing us money. So the admitted carriers and the ENS carriers are aware of this, at least their general counsels are, and they watched with almost a disconcerned amusement. I mean, it's not their problem, if we're being honest here. Now, the okay. larger companies with captives and the larger captive managers are keenly aware of it and have recently demonstrated a general desire to push back against the IRS. There was some real question as to whether or not some of the organizations catering to bigger captives would even care. But remember, captives are not a, a, a rare thing. Billions, billions of premium are written through captives annually. There's thousands of captives, and every company you've heard of has one. General Motors has multiple. Amazon has multiple. Google has multiple. I could go on and on and on. JP Morgan has multiple. Like Captive insurance is a routine transaction with these large companies. So an IRS that hates captive insurance is a problem for these larger guys. Now, in terms of what's occurring right now, there are at least two or three different members of the House that have expressed uh, an interest in learning more. I'm part of a small team, uh, the 831 the Institute, where we're doing our best to try to educate congressmen that, and women that this is a radical overstep and constitutes an unconstitutional use of their power in at least two different directions. Once going across separation of powers between executive and legislature, and then uh, also going down to the states. So I already covered McCarran-Ferguson, the business of insurance is state law. So to the extent that the IRS thinks it can mandate captives be effectively writing unprofitably or at, at a scratch, that is 100% the area of the states. And there are a, a, a number of different cases from a number of different circuits that would that would support that. So the IRS you've, you've is on testified weak on this, right? Recently, I have. I, I testified before the IRS on this exact point, saying y'all don't understand what you're doing here. You cannot govern the profitability of an insurance company. That is wildly wrong. But 
more than that, this also constitutes a separation of powers problem. So a couple, uh, last year in 2022, there was a case that a lot of people got upset about called uh, 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 the EPA or West Virginia versus the EPA. And in it, I believe Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh said, uh, we don't think the EPA is necessarily doing anything wrong, but it's just just way beyond the congressional intent. So as an example, what do you do if the EPA tries to apply the Clean Water Act to every puddle on the road? Like, it puts you in a weird spot, right? Because like, I mean, technically, the enabling statute allows that. But like, obviously, that's not what Congress meant. What the hell are you trying to do? Well, it turns out in that situation with West Virginia, the Supreme Court took the position that, you know, you're leveraging your enabling statute in an abusive manner to try to inflict pain upon an industry or, or a company that you just don't like. Well, that's precisely what the IRS is doing with capital insurance. They are leveraging their power under the, the, the Bush administration's AJCA. It's the American Job Creation Act, which gives the IRS the authority to say, OK, this is a list of transaction. That's a transaction of interest. That's a tax shelter. That's not. OK, fine, fine. IRS has that power. And they should. They should. I mean, like, clearly, who else is going to be tracking tax shelters but the IRS? That's not the problem. The problem is when you wield that power in an abusive manner that puts that puts the lawyers in a real weird spot because we're not we're not able to say, well, this is unconstitutional because of you know, whatever. No, it becomes more of a this is unconstitutional because you've just usurped the vision of Congress. So remember who's in charge here. Right. Now, I mean, this did change after World War II. I, I understand that I live in the real world, but Technically speaking, if we pretend the Constitution means anything, Congress is in charge. And you know that. Who gets to impeach the president? Congress. Who can impeach all the Supreme Court? Congress. Who creates the executive agencies? Technically the executive, but can be destroyed anytime by Congress. Congress is the one that runs this show. Now, they've delegated most of that authority away. They're not doing a good job. That's a separate discussion. But conceivably speaking, an executive agency that leverages its power to undo Congress's vision is acting unconstitutionally. So I think there's at least two different directions that we can attack this. So where it is procedurally right now is it's in notice and comment period. So that testimony I gave to the IRS was my was my comments on their proposed legislation. Typically what happens here is a very uh, check the box process. So this is probably an area of administrative law you're not familiar with. So well, let me just- By the way, by the way, was that a very- emotional testimony or were you very uh measured and controlled in in what you said and how you said it i had a script i went off script just a little bit but i had a script because okay. it was funny because like it was funny i was like putting my comments together and it occurred to me like the last minute i was like wow like all of my like co-workers and people in the industry are probably gonna read this maybe maybe i had a double check so i like i literally printed it off and like made sure like i, I was like very accurate but the the problem that we're going to be running into here with with the IRS is they're acting as if this is all just a series of check of boxes to check on their way toward doing whatever the hell they want. Mm -hmm. So the problem on a more constitutional level is what authority does an executive agency have to make rules? So I just had this whole thing about Congress is in charge, Congress is in charge, but you know, for sure, the EPA can can interpret rules and issue regulations. I mean, that's, I mean, even departments of insurance do it too. The state, Legislature says there shall be a Department of Insurance, and then Department of Insurance says y'all need to go get a license and pay us 50 bucks a year. Great. Regulations are fine. They have the force and effect of law.
but where does that power run out? And this is where the notice and comment period comes in. So if the EPA or the IRS or any other executive agency says, hey, y'all, here's a new rule, we the people have an opportunity to, to opine upon it and say, look, we think it's wrong or, or, or it's or great, whatever. And that's what occurred. But the problem that I run into here is that that notice and comment period is literally just that. They take the comments, they issue a piece of paper that says, we listen to you, allegedly, and then they do whatever the hell they're going to do. And my concern with this is that when they when they issue these these final regs, probably later this year, they're just going to they're just going to sit there and say 831B, no longer a valid transaction. So let me stop you right there. Let me stop you right there. I'm going to say this. You might want to mark this one. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that the future of insurance isn't captive. Now, let me explain. So it has to help your point in all of this. And I know it probably to some degree doesn't with the IRS, but maybe it will if you take this all the way to the Supreme Court, that as we sit here today on this podcast, most insurance carriers don't want to write freaking insurance. Yeah. You can't get a damn homeowner's policy in the state of California right now. So what the hell are we supposed to do at some point except create practice? captive programs when when nobody wants to write insurance so you're a thousand percent correct and the the insure tech community stands to benefit a lot from captives so the number one problem with starting an insurance carrier a new insurance carrier is that you don't have the data that the incumbents have and that materially impairs your ability to predict the cost of claims Right. So when all state, but, 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 but apparently, else, but apparently they're not predicting it very well either. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, depending on the line of risk, they, they can be materially off. But what you do with a captive is, okay, so you got, you got a commercial trucking program. It's around for two, three years. You get some data and maybe your risk management is doing well. You got some new technology, it's working and it occurs to you like, Hey y'all, we could flip this sucker into a real in, like program. We could, we could sell this. Well, where do you think the data is coming from? Data is coming from the captive. You ain't gonna, but you cannot buy enough data to be able to provide the actuaries with the real, with with enough analysis to be able to make good predictions. Okay, so whether you go to Pacer and purchase litigation data, you don't have the settlement value. If you go to third-party administrators, they won't let you buy their data because you know it's you know, insurance carriers' data. Law firms have the data, but there's privacy concerns there. Mm-hmm. All these repositories of data out there, with a handful of, of exceptions, maybe workers' comp, for the most part, are in the private hands of insurance carriers. So the captive industry is a real clear pathway for someone with some data to be able to say, "Hey, we're killing it over here." Why don't we take this show on the road? Here's a new MGA. Here's a new program. Boom. There you go. That's how you get into the game of insurance. The IRS doesn't want to see that happen. So Kemper Insurance announced last week that they are getting out of the standard home and auto market. And I listened to the CEO's press conference regarding that. And here's what he said. And I am paraphrasing a little bit. He said that the actuarial actuarial analysis and data over the last 30 years has always seemed to be tried and true relative to uh, standard home and auto markets and what we could charge. And in the recent future or the recent past, it's been more like a moody high school teenager. And I agree. for that, for that reason, 
we are no longer selling standard home and auto insurance in our company. Well, and I think with Kemper too, the the writing on the wall has been on the wall for Kemper for a while. Yeah, I think it was two years ago they went to like two percent renewals for some of their agents in mm. some states and uh, stuff like that's zero percent in Utah. Yeah, when when I heard when the nationwide news came down. Uh, which, by the way, I have a funny story on that to tell you. A carrier CEO came to visit me uh, about three weeks ago, and he was sitting in that chair you're sitting in, and I'm right here. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I heard this podcast a few weeks ago where these two guys broke down the, the what's going on with Nationwide. It was real good. Yeah. And I looked at him, Man, and he wasn't good. being funny. And I said, yeah, it was recorded. Uh, one of those guys was literally sitting right where you're sitting right now. I mean, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. But – uh. The, the nationwide news to me was surprising. Kemper, I was like, okay. And then Hippo as well. I, yeah, I was I was not surprised. Just based on things sure. that we've seen. But so, Matthew, agents listening to this, you're kind of you, you briefly said, you know, you know wh- where are you now with trying to get this this changed? You know, at, at what point are you going to be personally audited by the IRS to mm. get a target on your back? And I actually do, I would actually, I'm, I'm actually curious, do you feel that way? And then, and then lastly, Agents listening to this, how can they help you or help with this initiative? So if they decide to audit my captive, I'll be I'll be happy to 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 push them back to where they came from. Please come back on the podcast if that happens. Yeah, yeah. It'd be it'd be actually a lot of fun for me because my captive pays. I mean, we have about a 33% ultimate loss ratio. So if you want to say I'm not writing real insurance, come at me. I mean, I'm using a form that's ISO or similar to ISO based. We pay our claims. We litigate aggressively. And if you're going to say that my good performance is is, a, is a somehow or another attack shelter, yeah, I mean, let's rumble. Bring it the, on like Donkey Kong, huh? The industry in general is actively pushing against this. And I've spoken with a captive manager or two who are interested in challenging this because the the expansiveness with the way that they impose the penalties could actually extend to accountants, lawyers, and captive managers who promote 831B captives. So if you want to go out and prosecute the entire industry uh, for, as the IRS, you know, you're more than welcome to, but the industry is pooling its resources. And when, it, when these regulations fall, if they don't differ materially from what's been uh, published, I would expect, I mean, I know for sure there's a guy up in Pennsylvania who's already got a case under different grounds. See, the IRS screwed a whole lot of stuff up. I'm just talking about the insurance stuff. On the Administrative Procedures Act side, there's other arguments that can be made, and he's interested in going in that direction. So I don't see this surviving in the long run. Mm -hmm. What I do see is that agents who are struggling with with renewals in, in difficult lines should keep captives in the back of their pocket and work with captive managers or other professionals who can navigate these these waters. What I'm doing right now is for a new captive, if it's right in less than 2.65 in gross written premium, then I just won't make the 831B election the first year. Mm-hmm. It's really not super bad in terms of your tax impact in the first year, because we typically have claims that last for a little while. So you can get into the game for a, for a minute before you start playing the tax game. And that's just a simple way of making sure you stay off the radar. And then when this all clears up, you may want to make the 831B election and then maybe even amend prior tax returns to capture that election from previous years so you get an opportunity for some refunds from the government. So that's the practical advice in the short term. Matthew, so Bradley and I, if we want to start the Insurance Guys podcast, Captive 
program for doesn't matter what it might be, but something that's a problem like, you know, habitational, habitational or truck hospitality, how much premium we're going to hire you as our captive manager to help us put this together. How much premium to get this thing off the ground would we need to bring you? And then from that premium, just ballpark cocktail, not napkin math here. What would we need to put in, in terms of actual money to get it going? So you guys are unique because you have agencies. Uh, so what I would look at there is an agency captive, which okay. is completely different than what we've been discussing. So what we've been discussing is a parent company, one of your insurance is getting a raw deal. Sure. So they decide to self-insure. Got, and got a lot honestly, of those. if I'm a broker, I'm probably a little concerned about that because why do you need me anymore? I'm still, I'm, you know, I'm just the broker. So if the broker uh, gets kicked out, that that can happen. So here's here's how you navigate that. If you see a line out there that can be controlled, then an agency can can create a captive for that line of risk. As an example, I know a little bit about commercial trucking, so we'll pretend that's the one you want to go after. So then what you would do is you'd say, okay, on wheels, we're gonna we're gonna create a let's just say $250,000 retention within our own captive. And any carrier that writes with us, we're going to take on that quarter million dollar working layer of risk. And then for your good clients who actually do a good job, you then put them into that program. So then what you've done is the fact- When you say we're going to retain, you're saying that the agency itself in a trust account somewhere has $250,000 sitting there. Well, more than that, but we can talk about the actual numbers in a second. This is what okay. Marsh does, is what Aon does. It's how they're able to throw such extraordinary programs out that you can never touch. It's because right. they're manufacturing them. So what the agency can do is it says, look, I got I got a pool of capital. I got a whole book of business. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this book of business, and instead of writing on these five different carriers' paper, I'm going to choose the two big winners I like, You know, your favorite insurance carrier and, and their friend, and you know, it's one mil, three mil limits. Let's assume we're going to take the, the working layer of risk. We're going to take the first hundred thousand. We're going to take the first quarter million, whatever the number is sure. to get the, the carrier off the hook for the frequency. So sure. you keep the severity with them. And then what you do in your captive is when claims are coming in, your reinsurance company is now on the hook like a normal reinsurer. But now you're effectively participating in the program. Right. And oh, by the way, not only are you getting money in as as on commission like you're you're getting your commission you're also making money in the captive and that's so called that's if, called an agency captive that's, that's what yeah agency captives are like very common captive, you see them right? with all the larger brokerages they are controversial for some uh kind of the old guard because they don't like the idea of taking risk but where i've seen in particular with with marsh and, and aon is they take so much risk in so many different areas that the big brokerages are definitely brokerages, but damn, if they don't, I mean, they start looking like insurance carriers after a while and they do have enough capacity throughout their programs to, to make a, to make a dent in the market. I don't want to overstate it. They're not, it's not the same as Allianz or Munich Re, but, but these agency programs have been, have been killer. So what that does from your program standpoint, from your, your clients is, oh, we don't have to worry about this carrier being in and out of the market. And that carrier's thrilled to give you cheap rate because you've taken a working layer of risk off the table. Your concern is, are these guys going to deliver on the risk management like they have? So if they're a good bet, you bet on them. If they're a bad bet, you tell that, you know, this other client, hey, there's this other insurance carrier over there. 
right on that program. I'm not, I'm not going to put you in my special program because, you know, your risks aren't good enough. And you can have that conversation openly. If you got a secret way or, 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 a, or innovative way of managing risk, tell your prospective insurance, hey, you can go pay a whole bunch of money over here. I got a better deal if you get your act together with management. And if they start to see the numbers like 75 or 50% off to be in your program, you'll find people are really interested in joining up. Matthew, we got to have him back on the next podcast. I've got so many questions. This is an area, guys, that I'm really diving head first into some things that I can't talk about on the podcast right now relative to captives that I'm getting involved with. I'm desperately trying to learn as much as I possibly can. And I'm going to put you on the spot, Matthew. I would love, love, love to come up and see you in Georgia, which is, you know, not far from me and spend the day with you and just pick your brain because I, I really want to move my agency towards, and I wrote something down when you first started talking, let me try to find it here. It basically something that you call it like, like, like captive insurance manager, but, but, but like a, almost like a captive insurance agency that solely specializes in captive programs. I, I would much rather be going down that road for the future of insurance than I would be, Hey, let's go sell some home and auto insurance in California right now. I just think that that's kind of the road that we need to go down. If we're going to ever reach the ultimate goals that we want to reach as an agency, but I really, really appreciate you being on the show today, Matthew, we're going to have you on next time we, we batch file. Okay. No, this was this was just a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. So thanks a lot, guys. And, would you um, would you mind if I called? I mean, I've got your number in my phone. Would you mind if I called and came over and visited with you for a day just to learn? Yeah, I mean, I literally work on on a river. So yeah. I mean, so I'm in just a small uh, law firm. I rent out space from sure. uh, from two guys, I and mean, it's funny. It's like these guys do like criminal law, family law, personal injury, and then there's like me with this strange uh, captive insurance like company that's just like sitting in this little law firm but like i'm pointing right now right over there is the ustanala river which goes right by my house so i can walk down here downstairs and pointing the other direction now there's two different bars which i can go to for happy hour after work it's pretty nice so you're invited anytime you want to come okay I'll, i'm gonna make that happen and bro, may, may drag bradley with me if he'll Let's come up it. there guys you are listening to the insurance guys podcast matthew thank you again so much for being with us today and as i end every episode Rewards come from action, not discussion. Get your ass out from behind that desk today. I would highly encourage you guys to go out and learn more about captive programs. I said it earlier. I'm not so sure this isn't where this thing is headed uh, with all of the things that are going on in the industry right now, the turbulence, the unknown. Uh, learn more about it as Matthew started this podcast today. Don't just think the word captive insurance means your local state farm agent. It means something <laughs> completely different than just that. So go make money for your family, for your wife, for your husband, for your kid's college fund, and your parents and in-laws who are like mine, who are really struggling right now and ha literally, literally have me selling their stuff on Facebook Marketplace for them. I sold a landscape aerator for my father-in-law the other day, and I know what's going on, and I'm trying to figure out a way to help them without them knowing because they're too prideful to ask for it. But go make money for them today. Write good business for the companies that you represent and write good business 
for the captive insurance program that Scott creates. Bradley Flowers, I love you. Thanks, man. Thanks, Matthew. Matthew, thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Insurance Guys podcast. If you need to know more about me or you need to get in touch with Scott, you can always reach me at theinsuranceguyonline.com or email me at scott at iprotectinsurance.com. And if you need to get in touch with Mr. Bradley Flowers, go to portalinsurance.com or email him at bradley at portalinsurance.com. Guys, we love you. Thank you so much for listening to our show and being a part of our family. And we look forward to seeing you again next week on the next episode of the Insurance Guys podcast. Take care.